1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well,
2: good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday afternoon edition of the Georgine Rice Show, 93.9 KPDQ and 820 a.m the word. James Blend is producing in Portland. Dave King, well, actually, James Blend is engineering and producing in Portland today. Pedro Bartes, who is a superstar, is producer and engineering in Seattle. Today, we're looking forward to sharing a conversation I had with Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra De Sanctis. their book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. That's coming up later this hour. So I hope you'll stay with us. Well, former President Donald Trump and President Biden secured convincing victories in Tuesday's New Hampshire primaries. Both uh, both wins evidence that a general election rematch is looking increasingly likely. Now, Trump's main Republican opponent, uh, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, she had hoped to uh, win enough support from moderate voters in the state for a come-from-behind win. She wanted to be the comeback kid like uh, Bill Clinton. You might recall in New Hampshire, he declared himself, and rightly so, the comeback kid uh, he was not doing well prior to that. In any case, Representative Dean Phillips, a Democrat from Minnesota who continues to make the case that Biden is too old and unpopular to successfully take on Trump, was also attempting to uh, gain some support there. Well, from record Republican turnout to intra-party criticism, some of the top five moments from the uh, New Hampshire primaries. Despite her second loss in a row to Trump and polls suggesting the upcoming contest in Nevada and South Carolina, her home state would produce similar results, she has vowed to continue campaigning for the Republican nomination. More on that uh, later. Biden won his party's uh, primary despite failing to file as a candidate in the state last year, but did so with a massive write-in campaign that saw him tallying more than 60% of the overall vote at the time the race was called. The vote totals also appeared to show Phillips, who vowed to remain in the race in a distant second ahead of author Marianne Williamson, another Biden critic. The exclusion of Biden from the ballot stemmed from the dispute between New Hampshire and the Democratic National Committee over whether the state's primary would be held before South Carolina's, a much more diverse state that the president won in a landslide in 2020. Well, following Trump's sizable win, more big name Republicans began calling for Nikki Haley to drop out of the race. I mean, this is only the second contest, including Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel. The New Hampshire Republican primary saw record turnout on Tuesday, despite some reports that low energy among voters would depress the vote with approximately 92 percent of the vote counted. More than 293,000 ballots had been cast compared to just over 101,000 with approximately 88 percent of the vote counted in the Democrat uh, primary. Well, the previous record for a Republican primary in the state was set in 2016 during Trump's first run for president, when around 284,000 cast ballots. Only registered Republicans and undeclared voters could participate in the GOP primary. Undeclared voters could also choose to vote in the Democrat primary, but couldn't cast ballots in both. A plurality of registered voters in New Hampshire are Undeclared. So there you have it. Well, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley congratulated her former boss on his primary victory in New Hampshire on Tuesday night, but warned him that the fight for the GOP nomination is far from over. Well, numerically, it may be over, but not over in terms of her stepping aside. She said New Hampshire is first in the nation. It's not the last. She said in an election night speech that cast the former president as too chaotic and polarizing to win another general election, which may well be true. This court case, that controversy, this tweet, that senior moment, you can't fix Joe Biden's chaos with Republican chaos, she said. Well, Haley's strongest supporters here uh, were cheering her on again in New Hampshire, even though she's um, lost to trump an independent heavy new uh, new hampshire where she has uh, staked most of her campaign and came in a distant third in the january 15th iowa caucus speaking with the national review inside her election night party on tuesday night many of her voters said that clearing the 40 percent vote threshold in new hampshire puts her in a strong position to continue pressing forward saying she's in great state before the Granite State's primary was called for Trump, Eric Jostrom of Sugar Hill, New Hampshire, said Haley would be wise to continue picking up delegates in the event that Trump's legal troubles complicate his path to the GOP nomination. And a lot of people have that in the back of their minds: Will um, Donald Trump be eligible to run for president should his uh, legal challenges overwhelm him and he be find, found guilty in some uh, way that uh, has no way back? So. We'll have to continue to follow that. Well, United Auto Workers President Sean Fain on Wednesday endorsed President Biden for re-election, claimed former President Donald Trump doesn't care about the American worker. The United Auto Workers on Wednesday endorsed the president as the Democrat incumbent battles against the former president for support from key labor groups. Biden, who notably stood on the UAW picket line in Michigan back in the fall during their strike against Ford, General Motors, rather, and Stellantis addressed the union on Wednesday. Joe Biden bet on the American worker while Donald Trump blamed the American worker, the UAW president said, as the group capped its three day gathering in Washington, D.C. to map out their political priorities. We need to know who's going to sit in the most powerful seat in the world and um, us winning as a united working class. He went on to say, so if your endorsements must be earned, Joe Biden has earned it. End quote. Well, Fain attacked Trump's as a scab a slang for someone who refuses to join the union in Tuesday's New Hampshire Republican primary. Again, Trump earned 64 percent support from voters without a college degree, according to the Fox News voter analysis. Donald Trump is a billionaire and that's who he represents, Fain said. Well, Mr. Biden is not altogether poor himself. Uh, Fain also denied the race had anything to do with the um, well, the age issue, I won't put it quite the same way he did because I don't speak that way, saying the election is about our best at taking back power for the working class. When well, addressing union members earlier, he spoke out strongly against the billionaire class. The American people stand with us because they understand that our movement is fighting for every last working class American. Everything we do as a union must be about taking back our power as a working class. That's what being UAW really means, he went on to say. In other news, the Ohio Senate on Wednesday successfully overrode Governor Mike DeWine's veto on a bill that bans transgender medical procedures for minors and restricts trans students' athlete participation in school sports. Ohio House Bill 68 will become law in 90 days. The Republican State Senate voted 23 to 9 two weeks after the State House voted 65 to 28 along party lines to override the governor's veto. The Ohio legislature's vote comes after DeWine, a Republican, vetoed the bill late last month to kill both acts within the transgender-focused legislation. The bill in question included both the Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act and Save Women's Sports Act, each of which was dedicated to combating the transgender- transgender ideologies, widespread application in the state of Ohio. Well, at a press conference immediately following his veto, DeWine said neither the government nor the state of Ohio should restrict a minor's access to transgender surgeries or homo- hormone therapy. Rather, he said the decision should be made by the child's parents and doctors. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of experimentation going on. There isn't consensus among doctors who are cared, who care rather about the physical health future of these uh, young people. Um, so while I think we might agree that parents should be the primary leaders in making these kinds of decisions, we're not at a place where the lobotomy that we're talking about of one's private parts, uh, is something that should be considered under any circumstance when you're talking about a maturing but immature child. Well, a week after making the decision, DeWine issued an emergency executive order barring physicians from performing gender transition surgeries such as mastectomies or hysterectomies on children in Ohio's hospitals and healthcare facilities. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our march through some of the days headlines. Also coming up, a conversation with Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis, Tearing Us Apart, how abortion harms everything and solves nothing. The book published by Regnery.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder coming up later this hour, Ryan Anderson, Alexandra DeSanctis, Tearing Us Apart is their book. The Washington State Attorney General announced a $149.5 million settlement today with drug maker Johnson & Johnson, more than four years after the state sued the company over its role fueling the opioid addiction crisis. They knew what the harm was. They did it anyway. That's a quote from Attorney General Bob Ferguson speaking to reporters today. The Attorney General's announcement came as opioid overdose deaths more than doubled from 2019 to 2022, with 2,048 deaths recorded in 2022 alone, according to the most recent numbers from the Washington State Department of Health. Well, under the deal, the state and local government would have uh, have to spend 123 point Three million dollars to address the opioid crisis, including on substance abuse treatment, expanded access to overdose reversal drugs and services that support pregnant women on substances. The rest of the money would go toward litigation costs. Well, the harm is left now to policymakers to grapple with, the attorney general said, or families and individuals who grapple in a very different way with the real tragedy of addiction. Well, the settlement agreement still requires approval from a judge. If approved, the deal would spend rather send over $20 million more to respond to the opioid crisis than if the state had signed onto a national settlement in 2021 involving Johnson & Johnson, the attorney general's office said. Well, since the 2000s, drug makers, wholesalers, pharmacy chains and consultants have agreed to pay more than $50 billion to state and local governments to settle claims that they played a part in creating the opioid crisis. Under the agreements, most of the money is to be used to combat the nation's addiction and overdose crisis. Well, drug overdoses caused more than a million deaths in the U.S. from 1999 through 2021. And the majority of these involved opioids. At first, the crisis centered on prescription painkillers that gained more acceptance in the 1990s and later heroin. Well, over the past decade, the death toll has reached an all-time high, and the biggest killers have been synthetic opioids, such as fentanyl, that are in the supply of many street drugs. Washington state's Democratic attorney general sued Johnson & Johnson in 2020, alleging that It helped drive the pharmaceutical industry's expansion of prescription opioids. They also claim that the company made a distinct mark on Washington's opioid crisis by deceiving doctors and the public about the effectiveness of opioids for chronic pain and the risk of addiction. Well, the Supreme Court has ruled it's illegal for the National Guard to guard the nation. Well, in a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court has ruled that it's now illegal for the state of Texas and the National Guard to guard Texas or the nation. Using the National Guard to guard the nation is an egregious misuse of the National Guard. That's a direct quote from Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, who sided with the majority when the federal government has decreed that the nation not be guarded so that millions of illegal immigrants will swarm the border and settle in cities across the nation to swing the 2024 presidential election for Biden. States have no right to disobey that decree by guarding their states. Wow. As a result of the ruling, Texas is being ordered to open its border completely and let millions of people flood the state and the rest of the country until everything Americans hold dear is left to smoldering ruin. It's the compassionate thing to do, Jackson said. Well, the government had asked the National Guard to return to its normal task of fighting endless foreign wars. Uh, by the way, that's the Babylon Bee. While well, the words aren't exactly what she wrote, The sentiment uh, certainly is consistent with that decision. Well, a coalition of 77 House and 43 Senate Republicans is calling on the administration to scrap proposed fuel economy regulations that they and energy industry groups have characterized as de facto electric vehicle mandate. The 120 GOP lawmakers, 120 led by Senators Mike Crapo, a Republican out of Idaho, and Ted Cruz out of Texas, along with Representative Tim Wahlberg from Michigan, penned a letter late Tuesday to the Department of Transportation's National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, warning that its corporate average fuel economy standards, proposed in July, would raise costs, restrict consumer choice, harm businesses, and degrade both U.S. energy and national security. They wrote, We strongly urge the NHTSA, To withdraw its misguided proposal, go back to the drawing board and reissue new CAFE standards that comply with the law, rather than ones that seek to pick winners and losers in the free market and remake our country's economy, they wrote. To the deputy administrator, Sophie Schulman. nowhere in law did Congress authorize NHTSA. To set fuel economy standards that effectively mandate EVs while at the same time force the internal combustion engine out of the market, the letter continued. In fact, federal statute expressly prohibits NHTSA from considering the fuel economy of EVs when determining maximum feasible CAFE standards for passenger cars and trucks. Well, the letter added that despite a clear statutory limitation prohibiting NHTSA from factoring the fuel economy of EVs into its CAFE standard regulations, the Biden administration accounted for EVs in its regulatory baseline and factored that baseline into its determination of the maximum achievable CAFE standards. Well, the proposal, therefore, effectively requires the mass production of EVs, they said. The Republicans argue that NHTSA should set market-driven standards that promote competition among various technologies, not standards that limit availability of and access to vehicle and fuel options. They also noted that EV production has a sizable carbon footprint, a fact not factored into the administration's rulemaking. Well, plastic consumption in New Jersey spiked by nearly three times Following the state's implementation of a strict ban on single-use plastic shopping bags, a study found. Well, how does that math add up? Well, following New Jersey's ban of single-use bags, the shift from plastic film to alternative bags resulted in a nearly three times increase in plastic consumption for bags. That's according to Fredonia Custom Research, FCR, FCR a business research division from marketresearch.com. They reported in a study published this month. Well, New Jersey implemented a ban on single-use plastic bags in 2022, the strictest ban on bags in the nation at the time, billing it as an effort to cut back on the plastic one-use bag piling up in landfills. Okay, that sounds well-intentioned. Plastic bags are one of the most problematic forms of garbage, leading to millions of discarded bags that stream annually into our landfills, rivers and oceans. That's a quote from Democratic Governor Phil Murphy. And it's what he said after signing the legislation in 2020 that authorized the bag ban. With today's historic bill signing, we are addressing the problem of plastic pollution head on with solutions that will help mitigate climate change and strengthen our environment for future generations. End quote. Well, the ban took effect in May of 2022, forbidding larger retail, grocery and food service stores from providing single-use plastic bags to their customers. Instead, shoppers can purchase reusable bags made of woven and non-woven polypropylene plastic or can um, bring their previously purchased reusable bags to the store. It didn't take long, however, until shoppers started airing their grievances to local media that the reusable bags were stacking up in their homes due to repeatedly purchasing reusable bags at the grocery store or due to a home grocery delivery services using new reusable bags each drop-off. I don't know about you, but I have all kinds of these bags that are given in lieu of paper bags, and they do stack up. They become useless after a period of time. Uh, what do you do with the uh, the carefully marked bags from retailers of various uh, outlets in your area uh, when they stack up. Well, we'll see what happens next. In other news, Representative Henry Sulier, a Democrat from Texas, is warning fellow Democrats, including the president, to prepare for border security to be the top election issue of 2024 in that cycle. Standing alone in the Rio Grande in Hidalgo, Texas, on Saturday... He emphatically told media outlets the situation at the southern border will absolutely be on voters' minds this year. He traveled to the border this weekend as part of a bipartisan congressional delegation that also included Representatives Monica de la Cruz, a Republican out of Texas, Randy Weber of Texas, also a Republican, and Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Michael um, McCall from Texas. If they're uh, looking at the same polls I've been looking at, the American public doesn't like what's happening. Uh, The representative Sullier said of fellow Democrats, I represent an area where it's almost 80% Hispanic, a lot of Democrats, he said. So, yeah, the polls are showing that it's an important issue. Speaking of Biden, he said, it's in the president's best interest politically to come up with a solution on border security. Now, one would hope the president would not come up with a solution uh, that would be in the best interest, his best interest politically, but would choose to act in a way that is in the best interest of the American people that just might. Benefit him politically, but as the afterthought. Well, a Fox News poll from last month found that eight in 10 voters think the situation on the southern border is either an emergency at 34 percent or a major problem at 45. The group of lawmakers toured sections of the border Saturday and met with border and immigration officials. White House and Senate negotiators are working to cobble together a deal to. On border reform in exchange for GOP support for the president's $106 billion supplemental funding request for Ukraine, Israel, and other issues. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to encourage you to hang out because coming up, a conversation I had with Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanct is co authors of Tearing Us Apart How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. The book is published by Regnery. And in this Sanctity of Human Life week, it's uh, uh, an excellent thought to consider. That's coming up in our next few segments. Well, Senator Joe Manchin, uh, the Democrat from West Virginia, teased a potential third-party presidential bid after Super Tuesday on March the 5th. Uh, Super Tuesday pretty much confirms whatever is um, going to happen, what we believe will happen, and we'll see where we go from there, Manchin told reporters on Tuesday, the day of the New Hampshire primary. But people are looking for options, he said, and we're going to be looking at that Two, whether it's me or whoever it may be, I think there's uh, going to be options available if it goes down the way it's um, going down, end quote. Well, Manchin announced that he would not seek re-election for his Senate seat last year, creating speculation about whether he'd make a bid in the 2024 presidential rate, race. Rather, Manchin, a Democrat, started a nationwide campaign called Americans Together, aiming to unite the country's moderate voters away from the extremes of the left or the right. Well, as mentioned, Donald Trump won the New Hampshire primary. He's um, uh, his victory over uh, former South Carolina Governor Haley was widely anticipated. And it raises the question of whether or not the Republican race for the presidential nomination is over in a speech very soon after the networks projected Trump's victory. One, by the way, that CNN did not cover because the veracity of his comments were just beneath them. Haley insisted she did not intend to drop out of the race on the other side of the proverbial aisle. President Joe Biden won the New Hampshire Democratic primary as a write-in candidate after his name was not included on the printed ballot. More voters appointed to immigration than to inflation as the top policy concern in January. That's according to a Harvard Caps-Harris poll released on Monday. The survey found that 35 percent of respondents listed immigration as their paramount concern among an array of issues with inflation in the close second named by 32 percent of respondents. Joe Biden says Republicans are blocking Democrats from securing the border. Meanwhile, the administration is literally cutting down barbed wire fences to facilitate illegal immigration in Texas. They think you're stupid, apparently. Well, Liz Wheeler weighs in, pointing out that unlimited immigration from the open southern border is the biggest existential crisis in the United States it's, uh, and has uh, faced in my lifetime, she says. Remember, it's Biden's fault. Only 30 percent say the country is on the right track. Texas Governor Greg Abbott vows to secure the border in the face of the Supreme Court's decision. This is not over, the governor says. Governor Abbott vowed to continue to fight for his state's right to secure the southern border after the Supreme Court sided with the Biden administration on Monday, ruling that federal officials may cut through razor wire that Texas installed to repel illegal immigrants. Uh, Newsweek reports that the installation of the razor wire near the border city of Eagle Pass was among several aggressive measures. The Republican governor has taken in a bid to stop migrants from entering the U.S. illegally. The administration argued the wire prevents border patrol agents from reaching migrants as they cross the river and that federal immigration law trumps Texas efforts to stop the flow of migrants. Unfortunately, the federal government has no interest apparently in stopping the flow of migrants. Texas felt It had to take matters into its own hands for the sake of its own people. An Illinois lawmaker suggests residents house illegal immigrants. Now, some are suggesting what he meant was, uh, look, you are uh, hosting signs in your yards in the big homes and wealthy neighborhoods suggesting all are welcome here. So welcome them into your homes because we are overwhelmed. But a suburban lawmaker Outside Chicago proposed that residents be able to sign up to host migrants in their homes, noting that we do have a very affluent community. Naperville, Illinois, uh, Councilman John McBroom, he voiced the notion during a city council meeting last week. Well, Naperville Councilman uh, McBroom wants to sign up uh, to establish a sign up list for residents to host uh, those in the country illegally. We do have a very affluent community. Naperville is wealthy. It's a liberal suburb of the outskirts of Chicago. Biden won there by a 20% margin in 2020. So, in support of the president's policies, perhaps it's a good idea? Well, President Biden has spent $20 billion on refugees so far. The administration has poured billions of taxpayer dollars into the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Refugee Resettlement since October of 22. The administration spent $8.925 billion in fiscal year 22 and $10.926 billion in fiscal year 23 on the Administration for Children and Families at ORR to accommodate, transport and provide migrants with various other services like medical care and loans, according to the report, which was released on Tuesday. The increased figures include a record-breaking number of Chinese nationals and a 1,000 percent increase in illegal immigration from Afghanistan, Ethiopia, and the Dominican Republic, among other countries. The Israeli Defense Force experienced uh, the deadliest day of the war since October 7th, when Hamas attacked Israel. Twenty-one Israeli soldiers were killed on Monday when they came under attack in the southern Gaza Strip, triggering a blast that collapsed two buildings— with soldiers inside, the military said on Tuesday morning. The buildings were being rigged for demolition by troops when Palestinian gunmen fired an RPG at a tank securing the forces. A second blast then occurred in the buildings, possibly as a result of the second RPG leading to their collapse. The Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, vowed on Tuesday that Israel would not stop fighting in Gaza until absolute victory after it sustained its highest single-day death toll in the Palestinian enclave. The IDF has launched an investigation of the disaster, we must learn the necessary lessons and do everything to prevent the lives of our warriors, uh, to protect, rather, and preserve the lives of our warriors, Netanyahu said in a statement on the incident. The U.S. attacked another Iran-sponsored terror group in Iraq. The military carried out strikes on Iran-backed targets in Iraq on Tuesday. The Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said... uh, uh, retaliating against a series of Iranian-backed attacks against the U.S. in the region. Today, at President Biden's direction, U.S. military forces conducted necessary and proportionate strikes on three facilities used by the Iranian-backed Qatab Hezbollah militia group and other Iran-affiliated groups in Iraq, Austin said in his statement on Tuesday evening. U.S. and Iraqi troops were injured Saturday in the missile attack on a base in western Iraq, leaving some Americans in need of evacuation for traumatic brain injury. Well, there have been at least 151 attacks on service members in Iraq and Syria since the 17th of October. According to the Defense Department, the U.S. military has responded a handful of times, initially with strikes on ammunition warehouses. Earlier this month in Baghdad, the U.S. killed the leader of one of the groups. The Pentagon blamed for orchestrating the continuous attacks. Well, coming up in just a few moments, a uh, Conversation I had with co authors Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis, their book titled Tearing Us Apart How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show we'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, as we all know by now, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Many of us still marvel that it happened in our lifetimes. It does change things, but it does also present for us significant challenges. Well, just in time for the Supreme Court's official overruling of Roe versus Wade, pro life scholar Ryan T. Anderson and pro life journalist Alexandra DeSanctis released the ultimate guide, and I use that word deliberately the ultimate guide to the pro life policy issue, titled Tearing Us Apart How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is captivating. It reframes the ongoing debate and the current climate with the truth. And this um, that this 50, uh, nearly 50 years experiment uh, with um, unlimited abortion in America has harmed everyone, even its most passionate proponents. Tearing us apart is a comprehensive guide. It's made for everyone because the Supreme Court decision affected everyone All of our lives. Orion T. Anderson is a Ph.D., the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. He is the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment, and Truth Overruled, the Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. He's a graduate of Princeton and Notre Dame. He is the St. John Paul II Teaching Fellow in Social Thought at the University of Dallas. He lives on a small family farm in Virginia with his wife and their three children, Alexandra DeSanctis is visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, is a staff writer at National Review, and is widely published journalist covering politics, abortion, the pro-life movement, elections, and religion. She, too, is a graduate of Notre Dame and a former William F. Buckley, Jr. fellow in political journalism at the National Review Institute. She lives in Northern Virginia with her husband, and we are delighted to have both of you with us today. Welcome. Great to be with Thanks you. for having us. This is such a significant moment because while Roe versus Wade has been overturned and the decision making on the subject of abortion has been returned to the people, the nation is grappling with how to move forward. And for many pro-lifers in particular, uh, the challenge for us is to rethink the the direction that we ought to go. Let's begin, as you do in the the book, uh, talking about the major harm that abortion Uh, produces. You might assume your first chapter is titled Abortion Harms the Unborn Child. You might assume that we could at all at least agree on that point. But in 21st century America, in post-Roe America, we don't even agree largely on that point. So let's begin there.
3: Sure thing. I mean, so unfortunately, in 21st century America, there are science deniers. There are people who deny the basic scientific reality that the entity in the womb is an unborn human being. There are also still in 21st century America equality deniers, people who deny that all human beings are created equal and endowed by their creator with a right to life. Um, so the, the the more sophisticated pro-choice activists will concede the biological point, right? They don't want to be science deniers. So they'll say, yes, it is an unborn human being, but then they will deny the equality point. And they say, well, but it's not equal to us. It's not yet a moral person. This is the Peter Singer style. Um, arguments that you get from, you know, my, one of the, form, the the professors at my alma mater at Princeton, um, they can't affirm the declaration. They don't really believe that all human beings are created equal and downed by their creator with an inalienable right to life. And that's where we are in 21st century America, right? People either denying the science about the unborn child or the morality, the equality. And what Alexandra and I do in that very first chapter of the book is we just marshal the evidence. We go through the science that shows that it's a human being. We go through the philosophy um, that demonstrates that it should be treated equal because that unborn human being is our equal. And then we look at the politics of the law, why it's not an overreach of the government to protect the natural right to life of every human being born and unborn.
4: Would you like to comment on that as well, Alexandra? Well, I think Ryan covered it uh, pretty pretty successfully there. But uh, the last point that we, we do cover in that chapter that I think is important to note is, um, kind of the, the way in which abortion supporters claim that even if an unborn child is uh, a, a human person or human being and a, a human person, somehow um, a mother's right to her own body or a woman's right to her own body trumps the child's right to life. And this is just the wrong framework, right? We should be thinking about the duties that parents have, and a mother has, and a father has to care for their children. Not This is not a competition of rights. And, and the fact that a child is, has come into being inside his or her mother is not licensed to kill that child. It's a, a requirement to care for him.
2: Interestingly, we have come to accept the notion, and I'm speaking broadly of the culture, that women need abortion to be equal and empowered. And you argue in the book that neither thing has been accomplished. Rather, there has been harm that you outline in detail uh, as a consequent. Talk talk a bit about that claim that uh, in order for women to be equal to, to men in our culture, Uh, and empowered in our culture. She has to have the freedom to destroy uh, the child developing in her in utero and how that accomplishes exactly the opposite.
4: Yeah, I mean, this is a a pervasive claim. I think this is the the predominant argument in favor of abortion. And it's so prominent even that the Supreme Court repeated this very idea in its decision in in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, essentially upholding the, the Roe v. Wade decision The court said we can't overturn Roe, at least in part because women have come to rely on abortion. Women can't participate in the the social or economic life of our nation unless they have abortion as part of helping them order their reproductive lives. And this is a a really damaging notion for women um, for a number of reasons, you know, not least of which is that abortion actually harms women. Uh, But the idea of abortion harms women, too. Right. The notion that there's something dysfunctional or disordered about the female body about pregnancy about you know the female mode of reproduction this takes the male body as the norm and as the ideal and treats women as though there's something wrong with them or as though to kind of participate in a man's world women have to just get rid of whatever the the consequences might be of sex and, and act as though they were never pregnant in order to be able to kind of compete or be on equal footing with men
2: we're told that um abortion is first and foremost a matter of female autonomy, that it is a benefit to her. And again, in the book you go in great detail and I I've been in the pro-life movement for decades. This is the best I've ever read on the subject, but you go into detail about the, the, the cost and the um, the tremendous message it sends to a woman to suggest that she must fight against, she must reject uh, her own offspring in order to pursue her own interests and the, the tremendous toll that takes certainly on Herb, but for the broader culture, the, the father, the broader family and so on.
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things that we, and, and first, you uh, thank you for saying um, that um, Alexander and I worked hard to try to make this um, a very clear, compassionate and persuasive compiling of all of the evidence, all of the arguments. Uh, and so it's gratifying to hear you um, say that about the book and, what we wanted to show is that there's a better way of understanding what um, women's equality should look like. Um, that What we got for the past 49 and a half years, a, a version of equality that says in order to be equal, you have to deny your most distinctively feminine attributes, right? the, 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 the God-given blessing that you can carry a child in your own womb, that to be equal to men, you have to deny that you have to either sterilize your body or kill your offspring. That's a false vision of equality. And a true vision of equality, it's a colleague of ours at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Erica Bakiaki, who talks about there's an asymmetrical nature to human reproduction. And true equality takes that asymmetry seriously. Rather than trying to force women to live as if defective men, it says the, the female way of being human is equal to the male way of being human. And we can structure our laws. We can structure our marketplaces. We can structure our education system, including higher education, in ways that take both ways of being human seriously.
2: One of the things that you argue in the book, uh, post-abortion, that women risk emotional and psychological damage. We're being told in the broader culture that there is no fallout. This is such a benefit. It's such a relief. It opens such a broad uh, set of options for a woman who has chosen to reject her child in favor of her own autonomy, that there is no emotional or psychological damage. And women who, uh, who dare to speak up um, are simply denied, um, first of all, being heard and that they exist.
4: Yeah, this is a really a damaging aspect, I think, of the pro-abortion rhetoric, right? Because the the argument now for abortion is we have to celebrate this. This is a social good. It's not. We don't talk about it as safe, legal, and rare anymore. We're supposed to celebrate abortion and, and act as though it's always this wonderful solution for women. But the fact is, that's actually not most women experience of abortion. We know uh, from statistics that most women choose abortion because they feel like it's their only option. They're not choosing it because they think it's great or the perfect solution. They're choosing it because they're, they're desperate, essentially, or they're not get, you know, getting support from the father of the child. They're not getting support from their own family. And we know that after the fact, a lot of women do suffer, like you mentioned, from psychological after effects, whether it's you know uh, guilt, regret, depression, anxiety, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, even suicide. Uh, at elevated rates after having had an abortion. And these women are are simply ignored or even attacked uh, when they, they share their experiences, because we're all supposed to believe that abortion is this wonderful solution.
2: You also write about the fact that abortion harms the family, the relationship between a mother and a father, the extended family and so on. Does that make a difference when we're talking about the autonomy of a single woman being able to determine her own future?
3: Well, yes. I mean, what, what many women report is that the reason they feel constrained, uh, pressured, unable to carry the child into the world, but forced by circumstances to think that abortion is their least bad option is precisely because they don't have the support of a marital partner, an extended family. Um, uh, a really interesting uh, statistic is if you were a child um, uh, conceived inside of marriage, you have a 4% chance of dying by abortion. If you were a child conceived outside of marriage, you have a 40 percent chance of dying by abortion. Uh, Another way of putting uh, the statistic is that um, of all women who um, seek abortion, only 14 uh, percent of them are married. By contrast, 86 percent of women who have abortions are unmarried. Marriage is the best protector of the unborn uh, because what marriage does, it, it ensures that that man is committed to that woman before children are brought into the world. Anytime you're contemplating an abortion, a child has already been brought into the world. The only question is, will that child be able to exit the womb and, you know, enter the the, the visible world to the naked eye? Marriage is the best protector of unborn children. It's also an institution that really helps um, uh, uh, allow mothers to care for their children and to bring them um, into the next stage of their of their lives.
2: We're talking this afternoon uh, with Ryan Alexander and Alexandra Excuse me, Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are the co authors of Tearing Us Apart How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is a must read in this post war era, whether you are pro abortion or pro life. um, I would highly recommend it. We're going to take a quick break. We will return in a moment and continue our conversation. So do please stay with us.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Ryan Anderson and Alexandra De They are co-authors of "Tearing Us Apart: How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing." At the time the book was being written and uh, just about to be released, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v.ersus Wade. It could not be more timely, giving us a perspective on where we go from here. Uh, and I so appreciate the uh, the effort that they put into writing uh, this uh, manual. I would say for moving forward. Uh, let me ask you about the decision the Supreme Court made. At the time, as I mentioned, you were writing this book. It wasn't clear which direction the court was going to go. They obviously overturned Roe v. Wade, and there's been a lot of discussion since about what the Constitution actually says about abortion. Those who support uh, abortion rights throughout uh, a pregnancy believe that there is a constitutional right because the Supreme Court said there was. Others who have recognized that there is no constitutional right rejoice that they finally got it right. Your thoughts on the decision that was made by the U.S. Supreme Court? Well,
4: sure, so there's the nothing was... in... You can take it, Ryan.
3: <laughs> so, Okay, I was going to say, there's nothing in the Constitution that even remotely could be construed uh, to protect our right to choose to kill an unborn human being, uh, whether it was the original Roe v. Wade decision that said it was a privacy right, or then the Casey decision that said it was a liberty right, um, or then you know, the, the 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 hope for academic argument was that it was an equality right. This was something that Ruth Gator, Bader Ginsburg uh, had embraced later in life, and many academic defenders of abortion. So, you know, whether it's privacy, liberty, or equality, all of those rights, those are real rights, but they all have limits. And neither privacy, nor liberty, nor um, equality justifies killing another innocent human being. And so our Constitution, uh, rightly understood, has never protected a right to abortion. The Supreme Court simply got it wrong 49 and a half years ago. It repeated the error um, uh, 30 years ago in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And all the court has done in the Dobbs case is admitted its mistake and overturned Rowan Casey. Now, there are some pro-life scholars, and, and Alexander and I are sympathetic to this argument, although we think you know, more research needs to be done, and the current Supreme Court isn't there yet, that argue that rightly understood the 14th Amendment to our Constitution, which prohibits any state from denying equal protection of the law to any person, that that should include the unborn uh, human person. Uh, I don't think the current court, uh, the votes simply aren't there, which means that in the meantime, we need to pass laws at the state level protecting unborn babies, we need to pass laws at the federal level. Uh, We need to work to either have a constitutional amendment or to have justices that interpret the 14th Amendment that way. Because ultimately, we can't be half uh, abortion, half uh, pro-life, in the same way that we couldn't be half slave, half free. As Lincoln taught us, a house divided cannot stand. So eventually, we need to come to a national But we're going to start by doing this state by state, right? We're not there yet, so we need to be um, making progress at the state level uh,
2: today. You write in the book, Tearing Us Apart, how the pro-life community can respond to our current uh, situation, and we'll perhaps get into that a bit later, but it's an important part of the book. Uh, but but let me ask you, um, the damage that has been done uh, to the medical profession in this nearly 50 years of abortion on demand, before Roe v.ersus Wade, of course, abortion was legal in some places, including my home state, regrettably, my home state of Oregon and other uh, other states. But what has abortion on demand uh, done to the medical profession in terms of perverting its primary purpose and reducing the unborn to something less than worthy of the kind of medical attention that one presumed the oath required uh, preserving?
4: Yeah, so the, the problem, of course, with abortion is that it's not actually a health care procedure, right? It's a procedure that kills an innocent human being. There are two patients involved in every abortion, there are two human beings there, the mother and the child, and abortion targets one of those human beings for death. And it's not medically necessary. It doesn't cure any disease. It doesn't solve any ailment. It doesn't treat any problem. It just kills a child because a woman doesn't want to be pregnant for whatever reason. And so at that point, once you have a a country where this is accepted as a, a form of healthcare and where some number of doctors are willing to perform this procedure, even though it's not medically necessary, uh, that perverts our understanding of what healthcare is, and it perverts our understanding of what a doctor is. So now, instead of being a, a medical professional who's using his talents uh, to cure and heal, a, a doctor becomes a, essentially a technician for hire who's using the tools of his trade to to kill. Um, and so that that has um, very unfortunate downstream effects on on all of our our uh, medical field.
2: You know, it's rather interesting in the book, you offer some examples of medical professionals who practiced abortion, um, some uh, for many, many years before coming to the realization that they are destroying a human body. It's it's difficult to imagine that you couldn't uh, that you would be involved in the practice and not recognize that until there's an epiphany at some point. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um some of these medical professionals, professionals who have had an about face uh, after having performed abortion for a long period of time, and what the mitigating circumstance is that reverses their perspective on what they have known from a technical and medical standpoint all along.
3: Sure, I mean perhaps the most famous example is Bernard uh, Nathan, yes. who is you know one of the founders of NARAL Pro Choice, um, you know one of the largest um, abortion activist groups uh, and abortion uh, providers. Uh, in the country. And um, I think Bernard Nathanson himself performed several hundred, if not thousands, abortions. He also oversaw the performing of several thousand abortions in clinics that he oversaw. Um, I don't remember right now what the exact catalyst was um, in his case. I know one of the other stories that we tell in the book uh, was an abortionist um, whose daughter tragically died. And then when he returned to work, and he's in the middle of performing an abortion, you know, he kind of breaks down. He realizes, I just killed someone else's child. Um, and this was after having spent a couple months off mourning the loss of his own child, um, which is simply to say that, you know, there's a law written on the heart. Um, people know the truth, especially the, the abortionists, uh, because, you know, they, 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 they physically, they see the unborn child that they, uh, in some instances, are literally tearing apart limb by limb. Um, and then something needs to prick their conscience. Right? It, it, it's, it's not enough just to know the facts. There also then, it seems, needs to be something that alivens them, awakens them, not just to a fact, but also to a value, to a moral norm, to a moral truth. Um, and, you know, sometimes it a religious conversion. Sometimes the religious conversion comes second. Right? They first are converted to the pro-life cause, and then they start asking deeper questions. But, well, what is it about life? that explains the dignity and the sanctity, and then they arrive uh, at the conclusion of God. But, you know, every individual is unique, and so no two stories are going to be the same. Um, yeah.
2: How has a legal abortion harmed our politics and the rule of law?
4: Well, there's quite a bit to unpack there. Some of the the main points we make in the book, I'll, I'll focus on, on one uh, main one, I guess, is The way that uh, the legalization of abortion has really broken down our uh, our political parties and and in particular, the Democratic Party, Uh, you know, before Roe was decided, there was such a thing as a pro-life Democrat. Um, A huge number of Democratic politicians consider themselves pro-life, even, you know, voted pro-life. Joe Biden, even right after Roe v. Wade himself, voted uh, in favor of a bill that would have essentially undone what had happened in Roe. And we know kind of where he ended up. So um, there's been a, a big change on this in the Democratic Party. And I think we're all worse off because we have a, a, one of our two major political parties uh, that embraces abortion on demand for any reason, so much so that, uh, you know, you have Democratic presidential candidates now telling pro-lifers not to vote for them, uh, because that's how, how uh, committed they are to abortion on demand, um, even though most Democrats, most Democratic voters are not where the party is on this issue at all, only about eighteen percent um, of democratic voters support abortion on demand until birth, and yet the party has has fully embraced this um this position and it, i think we're we're all worse off because of this We'd be a much better country if if voters had a meaningful choice between two political parties, neither of which was was committed to this kind of injustice. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, One example in a speech at the NAACP annual convention in Atlanta uh, earlier this month, the vice president uh, compared pro-lifers in the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs uh, to the slaver, slave owner of the Old South. Uh, She said, our country has a history of claiming ownership over human bodies. Uh, Her historical reference was accurate, but the analogy was completely reversed. Uh, again, an example of the misunderstanding of what abortion on demand actually is. She got it exactly wrong.
3: Yes. I mean, imagine the the claim, you know, if you don't like slavery, don't own the slaves or the claim I'm personally opposed to slavery, but politically or publicly, I'm in favor of your choice to have a slave. I mean, that's what's at stake when someone says, oh, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I'm you know, in favor of choice, or if you don't like abortion, don't, don't have an abortion. Um, the idea that um, the, the decidedness debate that's in favor of protecting the right to life of the unborn child is actually the analog to um, the slave owner is just ludicrous. And there have been a variety of academics trying to claim that the 13th Amendment um, is actually the, the ju- justification for uh, abortion. Um, And they just seem utterly unwilling to acknowledge that there's already a moral relationship that has taken place. There's already a relationship between that mother and that child. And it's not, you know, involuntary servitude to say that no one, including mothers, can kill their own, uh, can kill anyone, right? I mean, it's one thing to say we shouldn't kill strangers. It's another thing to say mothers shouldn't kill their own children.
2: We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick, um, a quick break. Again, we're talking about uh, the fabulous book that should be in your library if you would like to be effective during this season post-Roe, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. My guests, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. We'll be back in a moment.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is a must read and I would highly recommend it. Uh, on the subject of abortion in America post-Roe. They cover how abortion harms children, how it harms women and their families, uh, how it harms equality and choice, one of the uh, champions of abortion on demand. Uh, how it harms medicine and the rule of law, politics, uh, and the media and popular culture, and importantly, uh, what the pro-life movement should do next, which is precisely the question I want to put to our guests now. Given the situation we find ourselves in, I think many folks thought once Roe v.ersus Wade is overturned, our work is done. We recognize now that that is not the case. What should the pro-life movement do next?
4: Well, we talk about this a bit in our in our conclusion, well at length yes. in our conclusion, and we don't give. Um, too many specific prescriptions, but uh, the main thing we call for is, first of all, charity among pro-lifers and, and prudence as we disagree and discern what the next right steps are. Right, because what's, what's possible in one state is not always going to be possible somewhere else. There are a number of states at this point that have almost total protections for unborn children from the moment of conception, and there are a lot of states where, unfortunately, those laws just aren't politically feasible right now. And so there has to be some kind of room for for incrementalism and for understanding that we have to change hearts and minds even as we push for more and more protective laws um, so that would be a, I think a major part of the strategy
2: i know that you write about pregnancy resource centers they have been the subject of uh, violence and opposition of late since the uh, early leak of um, what was likely to be the overturn of roe versus wade what do you say about these pro-life centers that in many cases outnumber abortion clinics across the country Uh, And the value that they and the role that they will play moving forward in this post-Roe era.
3: These pregnancy resource centers um, are a godsend to thousands of women, uh, women who don't want abortion, women who want to bring their children um, out of the womb and into the world. And they get no assistance from people who claim to be pro-choice. I mean, I think the attacks that we've seen of pregnancy resource centers really put to lie the claim that the other side is pro-choice, the other side, unfortunately, the activist on the other side is very much pro-abortion, right? That's, what, that's the choice that Planned Parenthood will help you with. They won't actually help you if you're planning to be a parent and you have an unborn child in your womb who you want to uh, bring to term. The Pregnancy Resource Centers do that. Um, and they exist merely to serve those women who voluntarily come to them, seeking their assistance. And that's why it's so utterly grotesque, if not downright satanic that we've seen the attacks on them over the past several weeks and several months since the opinion was leaked. Uh, and, and I think it's also particularly um, uh, um, just unacceptable how unwilling law enforcement has been to go after the people perpetrating these crimes uh, and really you know, protecting the rights, the freedom, the safety of these pregnancy resource centers to minister uh, to women who are seeking their assistance.
2: In the book, Tearing Us Apart, you make the point that abortion is more than a religious issue. But what would you say to those who argue that it's Christian to support women's right to abortion? We're hearing that a lot from lawmakers, but we might hear it a little closer to home as well.
4: Well, I find this argument very absurd because it usually comes from the same people who who try to claim that being opposed to abortion is just uh, forcing our religion on others. And they're very opposed to that. But then suddenly they also want to have it both ways and, and argue that, Uh, Supporting abortion is Christian. So there's clearly a double standard here. But uh, more to the point, perhaps, it's of course not Christian to support killing innocent human beings. Now, it it is Christian to support women in difficult circumstances who are dealing with an unplanned pregnancy, who need help uh, and and support as they they parent or, uh, you know, as they welcome their child. But killing that child is never actually a Christian solution, no matter what situation a woman might be facing. Um, You know, telling her that it's a a solution of some kind to enact violence, lethal violence against her child is is deeply unchristian and deeply wrong.
2: I like the phrase that you use throughout the book, and to say I like it is a bit odd, but um, lethal violence, to, to subject a child to lethal violence, which is a perfect description of what abortion is. One of the points you make is that we don't really talk about abortion. We use euphemisms, but we don't talk about what actually happens. And we try to distance ourselves from that because I think to confront it face on is perhaps too painful for most people. There are some, of course, who might be the exception. Uh, how how important is it for us to understand precisely what it is we're talking about, what happens in uh, these situations, and whether or not we, f- we frame our uh, opinions based on euphemisms or what's actually happening?
3: Oh, it's vitally important. This is why the other side speaks in euphemism. It's, it's why the other side um, doesn't actually speak clearly and truthfully about what's going on. It's why the other side right now, as we're speaking, is lying about, ectoptic pregnancy care or lying about miscarriage care to claim that pro-life laws would prohibit care in these cases. It's why they use euphemisms like sex-selective abortion rather than, you know, using accurate language. This is uh, lethal discrimination on the basis of sex. And it's just so um, fascinating to me that the voices that are loudest in condemning racial discrimination, sex-based discrimination, disability-based discrimination, they go silent. Or even worse, they cheerlead when it's lethal discrimination on the basis of race, lethal discrimination on the basis of sex, lethal discrimination on the basis of disability, which is what we see when we have uh, more black babies being aborted mm-hmm. than born in New York City. We have millions of missing girls across the globe. We have countries like Iceland claiming to have eradicated Down syndrome, when in reality, they have eradicated people with Down syndrome. They didn't find a cure For the genetic disorder. What they've done is successfully diagnosed and killed all of the um, children diagnosed with Down syndrome. Um, So it's very important that we don't fall for the euphemism um, that the other side uses to talk about these issues, that we speak the truth clearly and compassionately. Well,
2: I appreciate, too, that you go into the, the history and the founding of the abortion movement, that the eugenicist uh, perspective has been successful even in our century in that there's a disproportionate number of Hispanic and African-American babies who are subject to abortions in this country. Uh, an inconvenient truth that, again, is overlooked or minimized because this is creating opportunity for for black women moving forward.
4: Yeah, this is a very disturbing argument. And, and you see, um, in fact, in the, the wake of Roe having been overturned, abortion supporters making the argument that this is disproportionately going to affect uh, non-white populations and women. And and my first thought is, well, if that's true, shouldn't we be supporting these women, right? The idea that kind of ramping up abortion numbers or, or building more abortion facilities in these neighborhoods is not actually a solution. if If women uh, of color are feeling like they have to choose abortion at a higher rates, then that's a, a serious problem in our society. And we should be working to support those women, not just kind of helping them access abortion as much as, as, as uh, you know, Planned Parenthood would like them to.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, what can prolife and we've touched on this a little bit, but prolife advocates do to make it easier for women to choose life. We've talked about the Pregnancy Resource Centers, but for the individual, what do you recommend? Because uh, I think when they read the book, they're going to want to be proactive and not just veterans informed. What can we do to help support women?
3: There's an endless variety of things that we can do, and it all depends on what our station in life, our vocation in life is. I mean, for some of us, it's going to be prayer. Actually, for all of us, it should be prayer. (laughs) Um, For many of us, it's going to be a financial contribution. Uh, Look up your local pregnancy resource center and start making a monthly contribution, perhaps volunteering your time at that local pregnancy resource center. Um, Perhaps it's becoming a foster parent. Perhaps it's becoming an adoptive Parent, uh, perhaps it's you know writing that letter to the editor, writing the op-ed for your local newspaper. Perhaps it's lobbying your state representative. It's going to um, the state house and speaking with your elected representatives to make sure that they pass the good laws that will be protecting the unborn babies. Maybe it's working on paid family leave or maternity care. I mean, there's a variety of uh, both kind of supply side and demand side uh, public policies that we can be looking at. The supply side being the abortionist, uh, the people who supply the lethal action, the demand. Why do women have a demand? Why why do they think they need abortion? There are public policies that can address that as well. Um, so there really is an, you know, an infinite number of things uh, leaders could do after um, finishing the book. And a lot really just depends on what their station in life and their vocation in life is.
2: Well, and again, I want to emphasize that at the conclusion of the book, you offer a number of uh, things to think about in terms of how we can uh contribute to this new, um, this new landscape post row in a state like Oregon. It's definitely an uphill battle, but one that we've been engaged in for for decades and will continue uh, in other parts of the country. There may be um, a restriction on abortion that we could only have dreamed of years ago. So there's plenty of work to be done and it begins, as you pointed out uh with prayer and then being willing to, uh, to move forward in action. I again want to thank both of you for the uh, Clearly, the hard work that you did in putting this book together, and I would suggest that our listeners get a copy of the book, read it, and um, purpose to move forward in favor of life. Again, the title is Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. Thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland only segments of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Georgetown's School of Foreign Service is uh, fully committed to DEI indoctrination. The School of Foreign Service recently renewed its pledge to embed diversity, equity, and inclusion ideology as a core principle of the school, according to an email sent to students on the 10th of January. Georgetown SFS communicated the efforts um, through its DEI office and promoted its strategic plan for boosting the ideology throughout the school. The uh, plan outlines objectives like embed attention to DEI and hiring promotion and performance review efforts, cross fertilize and connect DEI related efforts across SFS programs, affirm and reward attention to DEI and anti-racism in course content. Now, I'm an African-American. I am an african american i Support the notion of resisting uh, racism, but the kind of indoctrination that this uh, program um, embraces is unacceptable. It's um, not even handed and I oppose its use, which does not mean I uh, embrace racism. Well, Turkey has accepted Sweden into NATO. Hungary is the final holdout. Turkey's parliament approved Sweden's entrance to NATO, removing one of the last remaining obstacles to an historic expansion of the alliance in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The vote on Tuesday night likely ends a nearly two year long diplomatic standoff between Turkey and Western powers that began when Turkish President Erdogan, he threatened to block both Sweden and Finland's entry into the organization. Finland joined the North Atlantic Treaty Organization last year after Turkey dropped its opposition. Now, Sweden only needs Hungary's parliament to give its approval to join the alliance. Hungary had pledged not to be the last country to approve Swedish membership, but has now become the final holdout. Turkey had argued that Sweden was uh, giving refuge to Kurdish militants and needed to do more to crack down on rebel groups like the Kurdistan Workers Party, the PKK. The which it uh, considers a terrorist organization. The EU and U.S. have also designated the PKK as a terrorist group. Sweden introduced tougher anti-terrorism laws in June, making it illegal to give financial or logistical help to terrorist groups. Well, the golden age of Hollywood classics are going to get diversity-focused remakes. Hollywood continues its obsession with the politics of race. Legendary Hollywood gems like The Wizard of Oz and the Christmas classic It's a Wonderful Life are both getting what director and writer Kenya Barris is calling a diverse reboot. Speaking to Variety at the Sundance Film Festival, Barris confirmed he's working on scripts for both films. Remaking classics usually a bad idea. The creator of Blackish and director of You People is um, finished with his reimagining of The Wizard of Oz. I thought the whiz was that, which will place Dorothy in Inglewood, California. The second film he's working on is an update of It's a Wonderful Life and will feature a person of color. I think that's the uh, perfect story to tell for a person of color, black or brown, to get into. Uh, That because our communities have some issues and someone trying to help that community out. Well, you know, being creative and writing your own script might also be another way of making that point. Well, Governor DeSantis nixed the idea of Florida State paying candidate uh, Trump's legal fees. Now, you might be scratching your head. What? Well, Florida State Senator... Elena Garcia recently put forward a bill that would have given up to five million dollars to Donald Trump for his legal fees. And while Garcia's sentiments may have been in the right place, if you support Trump, as Democrats have used the, uh, the courts as a campaign weapon against the former president, The idea of Florida taxpayers effectively funding Trump's legal defense would have amounted to a backdoor campaign finance gambit. In any case, Governor Ron DeSantis quickly threw cold water on the idea, linking to a political headline that read some Florida Republicans want taxpayers to pay Trump's legal bills. DeSantis posted, but not the Florida Republican who wields the veto pin. Hours later, Garcia withdrew her bill and gave the following explanation. My concern was the political weaponization against conservative candidates. And while Jimmy uh, Petronas uh, brought me uh, this bill at a time when all candidates were committing to campaign through the primary, one front runner now remains and he can handle himself. End quote. Well, given Trump's wealth and notoriety, he is well positioned to handle the legal fees. In fact, the Democrats legal targeting of the former president has proven to be a campaign boon for the former president. Well, those in the country illegally have been arrested in Chicago for mass looting. We're continually told that illegal aliens who've been pouring across the southern border are doing so for economic opportunity, and that may be well be the case for many. And perhaps uh, they are if economic opportunity includes shoplifting for some. Uh, it's been reported one Chicago suburb has been a um, proving ground for this theory. From the 23rd of October through the 17th of January, a total of 47 uh, migrants were arrested in Oak Brook, Illinois, mostly for alleged property crimes, according to Brian Storkis, the chief Uh, The chief of police for Oak Brook Police Department, most who were um, arrested were charged with retail theft and burglary. The latest incident involved an Ecuadorian migrant who resides in Chicago and is um, accused of stealing more than three thousand dollars worth of merchandise from retail stores and evading immigration and customs uh, enforcement supervision by cutting off his electronic monitoring device. Fairly easy to do, I'm told. The local Macy's seems to be a popular target, and lest anyone think uh, uh, we're picking on Ecuadorians, uh, two Venezuelans uh, were recently arrested for cleaning out the same Macy's of roughly $3,000 in high-end cosmetics. Oak Brook, um, we should note, is a relatively tiny town of approximately 8,000, and if any of its uh, residents are still inclined uh, to support what's happening, they're giving it a second thought. Well, Texas is following the Biden method. Despite the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in favor of the administration regarding its cutting of razor wire placed by Texas along the southern border, Governor Abbott is taking a page out of the Biden playbook and simply moving forward with his aim to secure the southern border. Far from abandoning the border, the Texas National Guard has continued to install razor wire and release the following statement. The Texas Military Department continues to hold the line in Shelby Park to deter and prevent unlawful entry into the state of Texas. We remain resolute in our actions to secure our border, preserve the rule of law, and protect the sovereignty of our state. Abbott further explained the Texas National Guard continues to hold the line in Eagle Pass, Texas. Uh, Texas will um, not back down from our efforts to secure the border in Biden's absence. If Biden can thumb his nose at the Constitution that requires him to maintain the security of the national borders, then Abbott feels free to ignore Biden's efforts to thwart his responsibility to maintain Texas security. And it continues. The president has blown some $20 billion on resettlement. Every Democrat knows that walls don't work, but perhaps it would have been uh, worth testing that truism on our southern border just to be sure, just to see if the current calamity could have been lessened or avoided altogether. And perhaps to fund the little border wall experiment, we could have used the some $20 billion or so that the president has blown in the past two years on resettlement of the many millions uh, who've thumbed their nose at our laws and our national sovereignty. Indeed, according to a watchdog report, Team Biden spent $8.925 billion in fiscal year 22, $10.928 billion in fiscal year 23 to care for and transport um, illegals around the country. Perhaps it's an idea whose time has come, a proposed funding cuts for medical schools that push DEI. Um, Let's see, earlier this month, there was a little dust-up involving a Johns Hopkins University diversity officer whose monthly Diversity Digest email characterized white people and specifically white males and Christians as privileged and now perhaps spurred on by the obvious destructiveness of pitting one group of Americans against another via so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. One lawmaker is inclined to take action. Maryland Republican Congressman Andy Harris, who himself is a graduate of the Johns Hopkins Medical School, suggests that Congress should use the power of the purse. Harris thinks medical schools are a good place to start. This is a very dangerous trend, he warned. We are supposed to be absolutely colorblind to the greatest extent into the broadest definition of the meaning when we take care of patients. And whenever, again, health professionals start talking about this, about classes that one should be perhaps wary of, this is very, very worrisome. Meanwhile, Illinois governor is bragging about record-setting pot sales for the third year in a row. Uh, Crowed Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. Illinois had record-setting growth for adult-use cannabis sales. We're building the most prosperous and accessible cannabis industry in the nation, taking steps to repair the damage of the past and creating real opportunity for all Illinois um, at some significant cost to those individuals who abuse uh, its use. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break. We'll be back with our final segment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment
2: of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, an In-N-Out Burger will soon be totally out of its location in East Oakland, California. We have made the decision to close our In-N-Out Burger location in Oakland due to ongoing issues with crime. That's what the COO says. Despite taking repeated steps to create safer conditions, our customers and associates are regularly victimized by car break-ins Property damage, theft, armed robberies. Our last day of business in Oakland will be Sunday, March 24th. It's hard to blame the restaurant as police rec- uh, records show that since 2019, there have been 1,335 crime-related incidents immediately around the store's location. Speaking of crime-related incidents across the bay, San Francisco, San Francisco rather, set a new record for drug overdose deaths last year with a total of 806. The previous record, 726 overdose deaths, was set three years ago. Roughly 80% of those who died from overdoses were men, but fewer than 30% were homeless. Conservatives blasted uh, Biden as an election denier after he called McAuliffe the real governor of Virginia. Huh. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin made his first public appearance since his secretive hospitalization. The AOC-affiliated Democratic Socialists of America is in financial crisis, and U.S. and Chinese researchers wanted to engineer a virus Similar to COVID one year before the pandemic outbreak, internal documents show. Were they successful? Jeff Bezos has paid $15.5 million of the $100 million he promised Maui after the wildfires. But no one knows where it went. Hmm. Well, on this day in history, 1848, James W. Marshall a New Jersey native discovers a gold nugget at Sutter's Mill in Northern California, helping launch the gold rush of 1849. 1942, the Roberts Commission places much of the blame for America's lack of preparedness for Imperial Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor on Rear Admiral, Bull, uh, Admiral Husband E. Kimmel and Lieutenant General Walter C. Short, the Navy and Army commanders that must have been a significant weight for each of them 1965 Winston Churchill dies in London at age 90 1975 the extremist group FALN bombs a uh, Francois Tavern in New York City calling uh, killing rather four people the site was the location of George Washington's farewell to the Continental Army following the American Revolution 1985, Apple Computer begins selling its first Macintosh model, which boasts a uh, built in 9 inch monochrome display, a clock rate of 8 megahertz, and 12128K of RAM. The sales start two days after the company's 1984 commercial airs on CBS during Super Bowl, some series of Roman numerals, the only national um, airing. For the TV spot. 1985, the space shuttle Discovery is launched from Cape Canaveral on the first secret all-military shuttle mission. 1993, retired Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall dies in Bethesda, Maryland at at 84. 2003, former Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge is sworn in as the first secretary of the new Department of Homeland Security. He had served as Homeland Security advisor until the agency was launched. 2013, Defense Secretary Leon Panetta announces the lifting of a ban on women serving in combat. 2014, a truck bombing strikes the main security headquarters in Cairo, one of a a string of bombings targeting police in a 10 hour period, killing six people on the eve of the third anniversary of the revolt that overthrew President Hosni Mubarak. 2018, the former sports doctor Larry Nasser. Uh, who had admitted molesting some of the nation's top gymnasts for years under the guise of medical treatment, is sentenced to 40 to 175 years in prison. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, scientists in China announced they have used the cloning technique that produced Dolly the sheep to create healthy monkeys, the first such achievement in primates. Well, Lloyd Mall may be getting a two-story venue in the old Nordstrom space, the city um, Records show, well, an architecture firm is pondering a project at Lloyd Center Mall. Now, there have been so many um, potential projects, ideas for the Lloyd Center Mall, um, even so much as a a baseball stadium. Well, records at the uh, Portland Bureau of Development Services show that a developer is mulling a plan to demolish the section of the mall that housed Nordstrom's to build a two-story multi-purpose event structure. Records at BDS didn't um, disclose the developer who applied for early assistance uh, earlier this month, but a bureau spokesman. Uh, said the applicant is Michael Reese with Works Progress Architecture, a 100% women-owned and a majority-women-staffed studio with offices in Los Angeles and Portland, according to its website. Reese, the operations director at Works Progress, didn't immediately return calls for comment, but developers often use the early assistance program to learn what would be involved in a project before undergoing land-use reviews or seeking building permits. An executive at Urban uh, Renaissance, uh, part owner of the the mall declined to comment either. Nordstrom closed its uh, Lloyd Center store in 2015 after 55 years in business there. I'd like to observe a moment of silence. There's not a Nordstrom anywhere close to where I live any longer. In September, Urban Renaissance made public its plan to revitalize the 29-acre site with as many as 5,000 units of housing, restaurants, green spaces, and if the market for office space revives, a corporate office campus. Now well, we'll see what actually happens. Uh, any venue at Lloyd Center might t- compete with another proposed space along the east bank of the Willamette River. Live Nation, the concert behemoth, is considering a 4,000-seat music venue there. So it'll be interesting to see what actually happens in this mystery space. Well, Oregon lawmakers will convene on the 5th of February in Salem for the 2024 legislative session, and hopefully this year the Assembly will be able to get priority business accomplished without yet another period of political turmoil between both political parties. Uh reading from an article that was published by Oregon Watchdog. They point out that it is um, probably a good idea. No one holds their breath in anticipation of a smooth session. Well, the danger of another session going off the rails as the 2023 session did with a long walkout of Republican lawmakers is ever present. But voters in Oregon should be able to expect far more from their elected leaders. Most voters want their lawmakers to meet, get the work done and get. Uh, get out. That sentiment was demonstrated convincingly when voters overwhelmingly approved Measure 113 in 2022. It's a new law that stipulated any lawmakers with 10 unexcused absences in a single session would be prevented from reelection. In short, voters didn't want to get mired down in the weeds on political dogma, but wanted action. Hopefully something productive. Well, the walk-in last year by 10 Republican senators was based on a number of factors, depending on who you you talk to. But in the end, it was a difference uh, in political opinions and themes that triggered the event. Some worthy, some you can answer for yourselves. There is no doubt there is... um, Gaping political fault lines between Democratic and Republican lawmakers in the legislature. Those chasms, though, are the responsibility of both parties. Democratic and Republican lawmakers are equally at fault for creating a political environment that is dysfunctional and doesn't really help Oregon voters. So what will happen starting February? What the state needs and does not have are lawmakers of truly epic stature, men such as former U.S. Oregon Senator Mark Hatfield or Wayne Morse. There are some... um, but not enough to uh, carry that kind of uh, moniker. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing and engineering today's program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hey, promise me you'll have a good night. See you
1: tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times. On 93.9 KPDQ